The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Waco, Sana, Kualwitekan, Lipan Apache, Tonkawa, Humano, and Comanche peoples. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orcutt, and in this episode we're continuing our exploration of how we study behavior in the fossil record, its sites in and around the Texas Hill Country. Since we're picking up right where we left off, if you haven't listened to the previous episode of Voyages, this would be a great time to go back and catch up before heading back here to move down from the hills and out onto the high plains. Brazos River feel a world apart from the craggy canyons of hill country. Up in the hills, you could be forgiven for thinking you were in New Mexico or Arizona, but the Brazos meanders across a landscape that feels more like Oklahoma or Kansas, profoundly flat and blanketed in farms. The very presence of those farms, though, hints at a close connection between the uplands and the plains. Crops grow well here because of the thick, nutrient-rich soils in the area. Some of these are deposited by the Brazos and other rivers as they flow by, but many are the remnants of floods. Water running off the Edwards Plateau has made the region at its base Flash Flood Alley. While swollen rivers overflowing their banks leave behind rich sediments ideal for agriculture, in the short term they can be catastrophic, and not only for our species. Long before any crops were grown there, The area around what would become Waco supported shrublands and grasslands that attracted one of the icons of Ice Age North America, the Columbian mammoth. Like the modern elephants to which they're closely related, mammoths had diverse diets, and in many ways the floodplains would have been an ideal habitat for them. On rare occasions, though, they could also become death traps. Around 65,000 years ago, a group of mammoths on a narrow isthmus between the Brazos and Bosque rivers was caught by a flood, or possibly a landslide caused by a flood, and buried. This herd's tragedy, though, would turn out to be a windfall for paleontologists thousands of years later. The people of Waco recognized its importance as well, and thanks to their efforts, so did President Obama, who protected it as Waco Mammoth National Monument in 2015, preserving a unique and important window into the life of a species that went extinct millennia ago. the barn that was built over a particularly rich bone bed, though mammoth fossils have been found throughout the monument's grounds. Inside, several mostly complete skeletons of the giant animals lie splayed out below the walkway that wends its way through the building. The skeletons are preserved in muddy sediments similar to the soils you can still see along the monument's riverbanks today. At first glance, the story seems like a fairly easy one to interpret. A herd of mammoths living along the banks of the Ice Age Bosque River were caught in a flash flood, either drowning in the floodwaters themselves or being buried in the landslides it caused. The combination of several individuals preserved together and the sediments in which they're entombed suggests that the mammoths were social, 
much like their modern elephant relatives, and lived alongside the river for at least part of their lives. If this were all we could deduce from the site, it would still be a great example of how the context in which an animal is found can tell us about how it behaved in life, but none of the conclusions we might reach would be particularly complex or surprising. But the completeness of the skeletons is not the weirdest thing about them, and a little more study of the fossils reveals something very important. The pelvises of male and female mammoths are shaped slightly differently, which means that we can tell sexes apart, and when paleontologists at the monument began sexing the fossils, they realized that all the adult mammoths in the herd were female. There were males present, but these were either preserved in different areas or were juveniles. An even more detailed picture emerged from this research. The herd that was buried at Waco Mammoth was not just any group of animals, but a nursery herd. Elephants will also gather in nursery herds, where adult females travel alongside and protect youngsters. After reaching maturity, males strike out on their own, meaning that these herds consist almost entirely of adult females and calves. If mammoths behave similarly to their living relatives, then, you'd expect just the pattern we see at Waco Mammoth. But before we jump to conclusions, it's worth thinking a bit more about what the geology of the site can tell us. The study of bone beds like Waco Mammoths goes all the way back to the beginnings of paleontology in the 19th century, with large accumulations of animals having been interpreted as evidence of social behavior be it among herding herbivores, pack-hunting predators, or species that gathered in groups to mate or raise their young. Any of these attempts to identify sociality, though, all hinge on a single, crucially important question. Did these animals actually live where they were found? Alarm bells should sound especially loudly when, as at Waco Mammoth, the fossils in question are preserved alongside a river. Rivers are, of course, habitats for a wide range of organisms, many of which do in fact spend their lives in or around the flowing waters. But rivers are also one of the strongest forces in nature, one of the few capable of transporting the carcasses of even enormous animals like mammoths, far from the environments in which they lived and died. Perhaps, then, the mammoths of Waco were actually the mammoths of Abilene, living their lives somewhere higher up in the Brazos watershed and being rafted downstream after death as gas formed during decomposition, leading to the phenomenon known in paleontology as bloat and float. In this scenario, the concentration of mammoths in Waco would mark the point where a sharp bend in the river, or a large sandbar, slowed the current's flow enough that the bodies were dumped there, not the site of a nursery herd's dramatic and tragic end. If this were the case, you could throw out all the conclusions about behavior we made earlier. The site might tell a dramatic geological story, but would be next to useless when it came to inferring anything about mammoth behavior. To figure out which explanation is more likely, you need someone with a knowledge of both biological processes and the geological processes of burial and fossilization. In other words, you need a taphonomist. Taphonomy is often colorfully described as the study of death, decay, and destruction, and the insight it provides on how organisms are preserved, and why many aren't, has important implications for all of paleontology. It's a field that has shot down many suggested lines of evidence for social behavior in the fossil record, but at Waco Mammoth it's bolstered the nursery herd hypothesis. If you visit the mammoth barn, you can see that most of the skeletons here, including nearly all the females and juveniles, are found in a single layer of muddy sediments. 
This supports the idea that all the animals here died in a single event. If the carcasses had accumulated over the course of years or centuries, they'd be found in several different layers. As is the case, for example, in the Park Service's most famous bone bed in Utah's Dinosaur National Monument. The clay in which they're entombed likewise supports the flash flood hypothesis, as it's exactly what you'd expect to see if a landslide caused by flooding buried the mammoths and prevented them from being swept downstream. If the bones had been deposited on a sandbar, on the other hand, you'd expect to see, well, sand surrounding them. The condition of the skeletons is also really important to understanding their taphonomy. They're mostly complete, whereas if they'd died elsewhere, you'd expect a combination of scavengers, decomposition, and strong currents to rip apart the carcasses into large chunks. Again, see the scattered skeletons of Dinosaur National Monument for a dramatic example. The nursery herd hypothesis holds up under the scrutiny of taphonomy, meaning that we stand on fairly solid ground when we say that mammoths shared many social behaviors with their elephant relatives. But not every behavior attributed to the Waco mammoths has such solid taphonomic footing. In 2016, a new perspective on the mammoths emerged when a team out of Waco's Baylor University published a paper on the site's taphonomy. They identified what they interpreted as minor but widespread damage to bones by plant roots and scavenging animals. If this is the case, it could mean that the bodies of the mammoths spent more time on the surface of the site before being buried than had previously been thought. The authors suggested that, Rather than a catastrophic flood, the Waco mammoths died during a drought as they clustered around a dwindling watering hole, being buried by a landslide only after the fact. Other researchers quickly responded by pointing out that the clustering of the skeletons, their completeness, and very limited weathering were all in favor of the classic flood and landslide hypothesis. As always in science, the debate will continue as new evidence rolls in and as old data are interpreted using new tools. But at the end of the day, neither interpretation of how the animals died alters the picture of the Colombian mammoth as a social animal traveling in nursery herds of females and juveniles. The Baylor team did, however, cast a lot of doubt on a popular interpretation of the behavior of one particular mammoth. Thousands of years after the nursery herd was buried, another mammoth died and was preserved along the Bosque River. Nicknamed Q, this mammoth stands out because of its huge size and because it's an adult male. Because male elephants leave the herd when they reach maturity, and because the composition of the Waco herd suggests male mammoths did the same, you'd expect that Q would be found isolated from other individuals. If you visit Waco Mammoth, though, you can see that the same layer in which Q is buried also contains skeletons of two juvenile mammoths, nicknamed R and V. In fact, R is preserved so close to Q that it appears to be nestled in the bigger animal's tusks. Does this mean that Q was actually interacting with R when they both died? Was Q perhaps trying to hoist R out of the ravine in which they were trapped during a flood? It's a dramatic scene, one that would have radical implications for parental care in mammoths, and one that's been entertained by several researchers at the site. The Baylor team, however, showed that it was far more likely that the two mammoths were swept together by river currents after death. They also pointed out that, given the often aggressive behavior of male elephants, even if you do buy that the two individuals were interacting when they died, it's far more likely that Q was attacking, not rescuing, R. In this case, 
Taphonomy throws cold water on what would be an incredible moment frozen in time and a unique window into the life of a long-extinct species. But that doesn't mean we can't say anything about Q's behavior, the most compelling evidence of which comes not from taphonomy, but paleopathology. Any animal, living or extinct, will experience injury and disease over the course of its life, and occasionally their bodies retain marks of these experiences. Paleopathologists look for such marks and interpret them in light of how fossil animals interacted with their environment. Q has a pathology so glaring it's clearly visible from the walkway, a large lump on a rib that shows where the bone was fractured and later healed. These kinds of injuries are common in male elephants, who often fight one another over mates, so the likeliest explanation for Q's broken rib is that he engaged in exactly the same behavior. Not every example of paleopathology is quite so straightforward, but they all amount to the same thing. Some aspect of the environment leaving a mark on a fossil. In some dramatic cases, though, the tables are turned, and an animal leaves an indelible mark on its environment. To see what this can tell us about behavior, it's time to leave the plains of Waco and return to the hill country, where you can find traces of animals far larger and far older than mammoths. a better introduction to the hill country than a hike through Government Canyon State Natural Area, just west of San Antonio. The Joe Johnston Route, the park's mainline trail, wanders along the base of a water-worn canyon for a little more than two miles and is rich in the plant and animal life that makes the region unique and so ecologically important. From there, a spur trail leads you up to Canyon Overlook, a beautiful vista from which the hill's geology snaps into focus. You can see the flat hilltops and the maze of canyons carved into them, a testament to how this is a landscape formed by erosion. What you can't see from this raven's eye view are the fossils found in the rocks beneath your feet that tell a far deeper time story of environmental change. Over the course of the Cretaceous period, 140 to 66 million years ago, this part of Texas was occasionally submerged, which is why animals such as clams, fish, and marine reptiles are often found in the area. At other times, though, sea levels dropped, and what had been seafloor became a coastline, and the fossil record shifts to one of land-living animals. Dinosaurs are the most common of these fossils, but with a few exceptions, it's not their bones that we find preserved here. Much more common are traces, a type of fossil that preserves evidence of an animal without preserving the animal itself. A burrow dug by a shrimp can become a trace fossil, and so can a hole bored by a clam. Where dinosaurs are concerned, the most commonly found traces are tracks, originally left as footprints in soft sediments. It takes special conditions for these tracks to be preserved, and Cretaceous Texas seems to have had just the right ingredients, because trackways have been found throughout the hill country. You can get an aerial view of two of them from the canyon overlook, and then descend back down to walk alongside them and get a sense for how these natural wonders form. The first thing you're likely to notice is that two very clearly different species pass by here, one leaving large, round, elephant-like tracks, the other leaving smaller, though still huge, three-toed tracks. Look at the limestone rocks in which the footprints are visible. Rather than being composed of large grains of sand, the particles that make them up are, for the most part, too small to see with the naked eye. 
meaning that they started as mud, exactly the kind of surface you'd pick if you wanted to record impressions of an animal's tracks. If you've ever left your own tracks on a beach at low tide and returned the next day, you know that it doesn't take much wave action to completely obliterate a footprint. The dinosaurs that left these tracks were far bigger than any human, meaning they left deeper and more durable impressions, but it's still likely that they were filled in and buried by other sediments fairly quickly, before wind and waves could destroy them. Once buried, of course, they had to be exposed again for us to find them, and it's easy to see the force that made this possible, the same force that shaped all of Government Canyon's landscape. The creek that parallels the trail to the trackway is often fairly dry, but when it runs full, its water wears away the limestone rocks below and exposes any fossils preserved there, which is why these and many other Texan trackways are found in creek beds. This same process not only unearths footprints, but slowly eats away at them, which can make trackways in natural settings like Government Canyon a bit indistinct. And, quick PSA, human feet speed this process along considerably, so please respect the barriers that have been set up at Government Canyon and walk alongside the dinosaurs, not in their footsteps. Just up the road, though, is a site where human activity took the place of natural erosion to spectacular effect, and where the value of footprints for interpreting the behavior of extinct animals becomes clear. The natural erosion that takes place throughout the hill country is, usually, a slow process. But around Canyon Lake, just north of San Antonio, you can see what happens when human activity speeds up the process, exposing large dinosaur trackways in good condition. Canyon Lake itself is not natural, but instead formed behind a dam on the Guadalupe River. In 2002, record rainfall led to a huge stream of water escaping over the dam's spillway, pressure washing away the sediments below and gouging out Canyon Lake Gorge. This is another case of a natural disaster working out as a net positive for paleontologists, because the freshly exposed rocks were full of fossils, including dinosaur trackways that you can visit on guided tours today. An even more impressive dinosaur track site, though, was exposed not through erosion, but by excavation. Following the discovery of a footprint-rich rock layer during road construction in the 1980s, the overlying rocks and sediments were removed, and a roof was built over the site to protect the Lone Star State's best-preserved and most accessible dinosaur tracks at what is now the Heritage Museum of Texas Hill Country. There are over 200 tracks here, representing as many as 28 individuals, though it's possible, even probable, that a few of the trackways were made by the same animal walking along the same stretch of beach more than once. The footprints are similar to those at Government Canyon, some three-toed, some rounded, but are in much better condition. There are traces of other animals here as well, including the trails of large snails, and it's one of these that show just how valuable trace fossils can be in shedding light not just on the lives of extinct species, but of individual organisms. Most of the snail trails are straight lines, but in one case a second line parallels the main trail. It's been suggested that this snail may have been injured, possibly knocking its shell sideways, and that the second trace is the shell's drag mark. The dinosaur tracks, though, are the ones that most palpably bring the past to life. The trackways form in long lines that mark the path of a single dinosaur as it walked across the beach, and you can follow these 110 million-year-old trails as easily as if they'd been laid down yesterday. You could calculate the speed at which an individual is moving. All you need is the distance between the tracks and an estimate of how long the animal's legs were, though as far as I've been able to find, 
no one's actually estimated the speed of the Canyon Lake dinosaurs. The fact that each individual trackway follows its own path rather than all of them being aligned along a single axis might suggest that the dinosaurs here traveled individually, not in large social groups. At another site in the hill country, the trackway of a sauropod, the long-neck group of dinosaurs, seems to consist only of the front two feet, leading some paleontologists to suggest that the animal was moving through shallow water with its hind legs floating above the surface, though it's worth noting that the jury is very much still out on this particular debate. The list of what trackways can tell us about dinosaur behavior goes on and on, and for once I don't feel the need to belabor the point, because unlike the other lines of evidence we've discussed during the last two episodes, trackways as clear as the one at the Heritage Museum don't require a huge amount of specialized knowledge to be able to interpret. When you stand on the museum's walkway, you really do feel like you're standing on the edge of the Cretaceous Ocean, and the trackways can be read in much the same way that those of birds or nesting sea turtles might be read on the modern Texas coastline 100 miles to the southeast. Unlike footprints on a modern beach, we can't simply look up from the Canyon Lake trackways to identify what made them. And this disconnect between tracks and track makers is perhaps the biggest challenge when it comes to interpreting dinosaur behavior based on their footprints. It's very rare to find the body of any animal literally preserved in its tracks. Some horseshoe crabs from the Jurassic of Germany are the only examples I know of. For this reason, ichnologists, researchers who specialize in trace fossils, have a system for naming traces that is completely separate from the usual naming system for all other organisms, living and extinct. In the case of the Texas trackways, though, we can make a well-educated guess as to which dinosaurs made which tracks. The most abundant footprints are the ones made by a three-toed, two-legged dinosaur. Three-toed feet are a defining feature of one group of dinosaurs in particular, the theropods, or carnivorous dinosaurs, which include such celebrities as Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor, and all living birds, which, with the exception of oddities like parrots and woodpeckers, still leave footprints that look amazingly similar to those of their land-living ancestors. There's one especially strong candidate for which specific theropod once roamed the heart of Texas, and you can see it at San Antonio's Witte Museum, which displays not only a reconstructed trackway, but a cast of the skeleton of Acrocanthosaurus striding along it. Acrocanthosaurus was a large theropod, a somewhat distant relative of the older and better-known Allosaurus, and it's been found throughout the southern U.S. from sites of about the same age as the Hill Country trackways, including one just outside of Fort Worth. It's the right size, shape, and age to account for the three-toed tracks, though a few may have been left by ornithopods, a group of plant-eating dinosaurs that also had three-toed feet. The large, round footprints were probably left by sauropods, possibly the magnificently named Sauroposeidon, whose bones have also been found just outside the Metroplex. But as impressive as the Woody Museum's centerpiece may be, and as founded as it is in educated guesswork, barring a truly spectacular discovery, we may never be able to say for certain whether Acrocanthosaurus really was the track maker. Just as we usually can't definitively match tracks to track makers, we can't match behaviors based on footprints to a particular dinosaur species. The other big problem that arises when working with trackways is timing. When we look at the Canyon Lake trackways, it's tempting to read them as a single busy day at the beach, during which many dinosaurs wandered across the landscape in a short amount of time. But even two trackways that cross each other might not mean that two different dinosaurs were in the same place at the same time. They could have passed through the area hours apart, 
or maybe even days or weeks apart. And another famous Texan trackway shows what happens when paleontologists don't stop to make these considerations. Glen Rose lies well north of the hill country, but the Texas Memorial Museum in Austin displays a section of footprints discovered there in the 1930s. The description of the track should sound familiar by now. One set was made by a three-toed theropod, the other by a round-footed sauropod. What's odd about the Glen Rose tracks is that the two trackways parallel each other, which led their discoverer, Roland T. Bird, to suggest that the theropod was stalking the sauropod. If true, this would be a stunning example of hunting behavior preserved in the fossil record, but sadly there's no compelling evidence that the tracks were made at the same time. Likewise, suggestions that large accumulations of footprints might indicate social behavior in dinosaurs could just as easily be explained as several trackways of solitary individuals made over the course of several weeks in an area that, for whatever reason, had a lot of dinosaur traffic. In fact, none of the lines of evidence for reconstructing behavior are ironclad, in and of themselves, which is why it's so important that we consider all of them, morphology, taphonomy, and ichnology, when trying to figure out how ancient animals interacted with their environments. To see how these lines of evidence can come together, we need look no further than the same dragon-like gargantuan that began our exploration of Texan fossils. Just as a skeleton of the giant pterosaur Quetzalcoatlus soars above the main hall of the Texas Memorial Museum, a life-size model of the same animal dominates the entryway to the Witte Museum. In San Antonio, as in Austin, its size is what impresses most, and indeed, when Quetzalcoatlus was first discovered, it was the sheer scale of the animal that got the most attention. In the subsequent decades, though, morphology, taphonomy, and ichnology have come together to reveal just how one of the largest flying animals ever might have lived. Taphonomy and morphology, for example, have been used as evidence for what type of food it may have consumed. While many large pterosaurs were found in marine rocks and presumably fed mostly on fish in a way similar to modern albatrosses, Quetzalcoatlus was found along the Rio Grande, which even with the higher sea levels of the Cretaceous was well inland. Its discoverers suggested that it may have been a scavenger, consuming the dead bodies of the large dinosaurs found in the same area. But later studies suggested that the stiff neck and straight snout were very unlike the flexible necks and hooked beaks of scavenging birds. Another study suggested that its limb proportions, similar to those of some hoofed mammals, and stork-like head and neck may indicate that it was a land-living predator. Ichnology and morphology have been brought to bear on how Quetzalcoatlus moved. While no trackways have been attributed to Quetzalcoatlus specifically, tracks of other pterosaurs show that they moved around on four limbs when on the ground. The big question, though, is how could something this huge fly? Early estimates of its weight simply suggested that it couldn't, though its large wings seemed to suggest it could. Later research indicated that, among other things, its lightly built bones and the large holes in its skull would have made it light enough to fly, and biomechanical analyses have made the case that Quetzalcoatlus and its relatives expended a huge amount of energy to push themselves off the ground, but once airborne could have soared on thermals like many large birds today. The discussions around how giant pterosaurs flew and what they ate show no signs of wrapping up anytime soon, and there are other aspects of their biology about which we effectively know nothing. For example, unlike mammoths, we really don't know how they interacted with other members of the same species. Nevertheless, 
The fact that we can infer enough about this incredible species, the last member of which died tens of millions of years ago, to paint a picture, or as the case may be, build a model, of it as a living, breathing animal is a testament to just how much we can glean about the behavior of fossil organisms when specialists in different areas of paleontology put their heads together. Thanks for joining me on this voyage deep into the hearts of fossils. As always, to dive deeper into any of the destinations and concepts from this episode, our previous episode, or anywhere else we've visited, drop by our website at voyagepod.wordpress.com. While you're there, drop me a line to suggest topics for future episodes, or to send me a question or comment, which you can also do by emailing me at voyagepod at gmail.com. While on the site, you can learn about the music featured in each episode. As with our previous show, this one mainly featured Texan and Tejano music from the Smithsonian Folkways label, but also included a musical depiction of the Colombian mammoth by California composer Jennifer Stevenson. If you enjoy Voyages, please rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcatcher of your choice. It's the best way to introduce the show to new listeners besides, of course, telling your friends, so please do that, too. I'll be back with a new episode in two weeks, and I hope you'll join me then and for all the voyages to come. Llegaste sin dinero y sin rolante, por el mundo que me echaste saco.